Chapter 8 of the Alaskan. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Brian Hoos. The Alaskan by James Oliver Curwood. Chapter 8. For half an hour, Alan sat smoking his cigar. Mentally, he was not at ease. Mary Standish had come to him like a soldier, and she had left him like a soldier. But in that last glimpse of her face, he had caught for an instant something which she had not betrayed in his cabin, a stab of what he thought was pain in her tear-wet eyes as she smiled, a proud regret, possibly a shadow of humiliation at last. Or it may have been a pity for him. He was not sure. But it was not despair. Not once had she whimpered in look or word, even when the tears were in her eyes and the thought was beginning to impress itself upon him that it was he, and not Mary Standish, who had shown a yellow streak this night. A half-shame fell upon him as he smoked, for it was clear that he had not come up to her judgment of him, or else he was not so big a fool as she had hoped he might be. In his own mind for a time he was at a loss to decide. It was possibly the first time he had ever deeply absorbed himself in the analysis of a woman. It was outside his business. But born and bred of the open country, it was as natural for him to recognize courage as it was for him to breathe. And the girl's courage was unusual now that he had time to think about it. It was this thought of her coolness and her calm refusal to impose her case upon him with greater warmth that comforted him after a little. A young and beautiful woman who was actually facing death would have urged her necessity with more enthusiasm, it seemed to him. Her threat, when he debated it intelligently, was merely thrown in, possibly on the spur of the moment, to give impetus to his decision. She had not meant it. The idea of a girl like Mary Standish committing suicide was stupendously impossible. Her quiet and wonderful eyes her beauty and the exquisite care which she gave to herself emphasized the absurdity of such a supposition. She had come to him bravely. There was no doubt of that. She had merely exaggerated the importance of her visit. Even after he had turned many things over in his mind to bolster up this conclusion, he was still not at ease. Against his will he recalled certain unpleasant things which had happened within his knowledge under sudden and unexpected stress of emotion. He tried to laugh the absurd stuff out of his thoughts, and to the end that he might add a new color to his visionings, he exchanged his half-burned cigar for a black-bowled pipe which he filled and lighted. Then he began walking back and forth in his cabin, like a big animal in a small cage, until at last he stood with his head half out of the open port, looking up at the clear stars, and setting the perfume of his tobacco adrift with the soft sea wind. He felt himself growing comforted. Reason seated itself within him again, with sentiment shuttled under his feet. If he had been a little harsh with Miss Standish tonight, he would make up for it by apologizing tomorrow. She would probably have recovered her balance by that time, and they would laugh over her excitement and their little adventure. That is, he would. I'm not at all curious in the matter, some persistent voice kept telling him, and I haven't any interest in knowing what irrational whim drove her to my cabin. But he smoked viciously, and smiled grimly as the voice kept at him. He would have liked to obliterate Rosalind from his mind. But Rosalind persisted in bobbing up, 
and with him Miss Mary Standish's words. If I should make an explanation, you would hate me, or something to that effect. He couldn't remember exactly, and he didn't want to remember exactly, for it was none of his business. In this humor, with half of his thoughts on one side of the fence and half on the other, he put out his light and went to bed. And he began thinking of the range. That was pleasanter. For the tenth time he figured out how long it would be before the glacial twisted ramparts of the Endicott Mountains rose up in the first welcome to his homecoming. Carl Lohman, following on the next ship, would join him in Unalaska. They would go on to Nome together. After that he would spend a week or so in the peninsula, then go up to Kobuk, across the big portage to the Koyukuk and the far headwaters of the north, and still farther, beyond the last trails of civilized men, to his herds and his people, and Stampede Smith would be with him. After a long winter of homesickness it was all a comforting inducement to sleep and pleasant dreams. But somewhere there was a wrong note in his anticipations tonight. Stampede Smith slipped away from him, and Rosalind took his place, and Keok, laughing, changing into Mary Standish with tantalizing deviltry. It was like Keok, Alan thought drowsily, she was always tormenting someone. He felt better in the morning. The sun was up, flooding the wall of his cabin when he awoke, and under him he could feel the roll of the open sea. Eastward, the Alaskan coast was a deep blue haze, but the white peaks of the St. Elias Range flung themselves high up against the sun-filled sky behind it like snowy banners. The gnome was pounding ahead at full speed, and Alan's blood responded suddenly to the impelling thrill of her engines, beating like twin hearts with the mighty force that was speeding them on. This was business. It meant miles foaming away behind them, and a swift biting off of space between him and Unalaska, midway of the Aleutians. He was sorry they were losing time by making the swing up the coast to Cordova, and with Cordova he thought of Mary Standish. He dressed and shaved, and went down to breakfast still thinking of her. The thought of meeting her again was rather discomforting now that the time of that possibility was actually at hand, for he dreaded moments of embarrassment, even when he was not directly accountable for them. But Mary Standish saved him any qualms of conscience which he might have had because of the lack of chivalry the preceding night. She was at the table, and she was not at all disturbed when he seated himself opposite her. There was color in her cheeks, a fragile touch of that warm glow in the heart of the wild rose of the tundras and it seemed to him there was a deeper, more beautiful light in her eyes than he had ever seen before. She nodded, smiled at him, and resumed a conversation which she had evidently broken for a moment with a lady who sat next to her. It was the first time Alan had seen her interested in this way. He had no intention of listening, but something perverse and compelling overcame his will. He discovered the lady was going up to teach in a native school in Norvik on the Kobuk River, and that for many years she had taught in Dawson and knew well the story of Belinda Mulrooney. He gathered that Mary Standish had shown a great interest, for Miss Robson, the teacher, was offering to send her a photograph she possessed of Belinda Mulrooney, if Miss Standish would give her an address. The girl hesitated, then said she was not certain of her destination, but would write Miss Robson at Norvik. "'You will surely keep your promise,' urged Miss Robson. "'Yes, I will keep my promise.' A sense of relief swept over Alan. The words were spoken so softly that he thought she had not wanted him to hear. 
It was evident that a few hours' sleep and the beauty of the morning had completely changed her mental attitude, and he no longer felt the suspicion of responsibility which had persisted in attaching itself to him. Only a fool, he assured himself, could possibly see a note of tragedy in her appearance now. Nor was she different at luncheon or at dinner. During the day he saw nothing of her, and he was growing conscious of the fact that she was purposely avoiding contact with him. This did not displease him. It allowed him to pick up the threads of other interests in a normal sort of way. He discussed Alaskan politics in the smoking room, smoked his black pipe without fear of giving offense, and listened to the talk of the ship with a freedom of mind which he had not experienced since his first meeting with Miss Standish. Yet as night drew on, and he walked his two-mile promenade about the deck, he felt gathering about him a peculiar impression of aloneness. Something was missing. He did not acknowledge to himself what it was, until, as if to convict him, he saw Mary Standish come out of the door leading from her cabin passageway, and stand alone at the rail of the ship. For a moment he hesitated, then quietly he came up beside her. "'It has been a wonderful day, Miss Standish,' he said, "'and Cordova is only a few hours ahead of us.' She scarcely turned her face, and continued to look off into the shrouding darkness of the sea. "'Yes, a wonderful day, Mr. Holt,' she repeated after him, "'and Cordova is only a few hours ahead.' Then, in the same soft, unemotional voice, she added, "'I want to thank you for last night.' You brought me to a great decision. I fear I did not help you. It may have been fancy of the gathering dusk that made him believe he caught a shuddering movement of her slim shoulders. I thought there were two ways, she said, but you made me see there was only one. She emphasized that word. It seemed to come with a little tremble in her voice. I was foolish, but please let us forget. I want to think of pleasanter things. I am about to make a great experiment and it takes all my courage. You will win, Miss Standish, he said in a sure voice. In whatever you undertake, you will win. I know it. If this experiment you speak of is the adventure of coming to Alaska, seeking your fortune, finding your life here, it will be glorious. I can assure you of that. She was quiet for a moment, and then said, The unknown has always held a fascination for me. When we were under the mountains in Skagway yesterday, I almost told you of an odd faith which I have. I believe I have lived before, a long time ago, when America was very young. At times, the feeling is so strong that I must have faith in it. Possibly I am foolish, but when the mountain swung back like a great door, and we saw Skagway, I knew that sometime, somewhere, I had seen a thing like that before, and I have had strange visions of it. Maybe it is a touch of madness in me. But it is that faith which gives me courage to go on with my experiment. That and you. Suddenly she faced him, her eyes flaming. You! And your suspicions and your brutality! She went on, her voice trembling as she drew herself up straight and tense before him. I wasn't going to tell you, Mr. Holt, but you have given me the opportunity, and it may do you good, after tomorrow. I came to you because I foolishly misjudged you. I thought you were different, like your mountains. I made a great gamble, and set you up on a pedestal as clean and unafraid and believing all things good until you found them bad, and I lost. I was terribly mistaken. Your first thoughts of me when I came to your cabin were suspicious. You were angry and afraid. Yes, afraid. Fearful of something happening which you didn't want to happen. 
You thought almost that I was unclean, and you believed I was a liar, and told me so. It wasn't fair, Mr. Holt. It wasn't fair. There were things which I couldn't explain to you, but I told you, Rosalind knew. I didn't keep everything back. And I believed you were big enough to think that I was not dishonoring you with my friendship, even though I came to your cabin. Oh, I had that much faith in myself. I didn't think I would be mistaken for something unclean and lying. Good God, he cried. Listen to me, Miss Standish. She was gone, so suddenly that his movement to intercept her was futile, and she passed through the door before he could reach her. Again he called her name, but her footsteps were almost running up the passageway. He dropped back, his blood cold, his hands clenched in the darkness, and his face as white as the girl's had been. Her words had held him stunned and mute. He saw himself stripped naked as she believed him to be, and the thing gripped him in a sort of horror. And she was wrong. He had followed what he believed to be good judgment and common sense, if in doing that he had been an accursed fool. Determinedly he started for her cabin his mind set upon correcting her malformed judgment of him. There was no light coming under her door. When he knocked, there was no answer from within. He waited and tried again, listening for a sound of movement, and each moment he waited he was readjusting himself. He was half glad in the end that the door did not open. He believed Miss Standish was inside, and she would undoubtedly accept the reason for his coming without an apology in words. He went to his cabin and his mind became increasingly persistent in its disapproval of the wrong viewpoint she had taken of him. He was not comfortable, no matter how he looked at the thing, for her clear eyes, her smooth, glorious hair, and the pride and courage with which she had faced him remained with him overpoweringly. He could not get away from the vision of her as she had stood against the door with tears like diamonds in her eyes. Somewhere he had missed fire. He knew it. Something had escaped him which he could not understand, and she was holding him accountable. The talk of the smoking-room did not interest him tonight. His efforts to become part of it were forced. A jazzy concert of piano and string music in the social hall annoyed him, and a little later he watched the dancing with such grimness that someone remarked about it. He saw Rosalind whirling around the floor with a handsome young blonde in his arms. The girl was looking up into his eyes, smiling, and her cheek lay unashamed against his shoulder, while Rosalind's face rested against her fluffy hair when they mingled closely in with the other dancers. Alan turned away, an unpleasant thought of Rosalind's association with Mary Standish in his mind. He strolled down into the steerage. The Thlinkit people had shut themselves in with curtains of blankets, and from the stillness he judged they were asleep. The evening passed slowly for him after that, until at last he went to his cabin and tried to interest himself in a book. It was something he had anticipated reading, but after... A little he wondered if the writing was stupid or if it was himself. The thrill he had always experienced with this particular writer was missing. There was no inspiration. The words were dead. Even the tobacco in his pipe seemed to lack something, and he changed it for a cigar and chose another book. The result was the same. His mind refused to function, and there was no comfort in his cigar. He knew he was fighting against a new thing, even as he subconsciously lied to himself and he was obstinately determined to win. It was a fight between himself and Mary Standish as she had stood against his door. Mary Standish, the slim beauty of her, her courage, a score of things that had never touched his life before. He undressed and put on his smoking gown and slippers, repudiating the honesty of the emotions that were struggling for acknowledgment within him. 
He was a bit mad and entirely a fool, he told himself, but the assurance did him no good. He went to bed, propped himself up against his pillows, and made another effort to read. He half-heartedly succeeded. At ten o'clock music and dancing ceased, and stillness fell over the ship. After that he found himself becoming more interested in the first book he had started to read. His old satisfaction slowly returned to him. He relighted his cigar and enjoyed it. Distantly he heard the ship's bells. Eleven o'clock, and after that the half-hour and midnight. The printed pages were growing dim, and drowsily he marked his book, placed it on the table, and yawned. They must be nearing Cordova. He could feel the slackened speed of the gnome, and the softer throb of her engines. Probably they had passed Cape St. Elias and were drawing inshore. And then, sudden and thrilling, came a woman's scream, a piercing cry of terror, of agony, and of something else that froze the blood in his veins as he sprang from his berth. Twice it came, the second time ending in a moaning wail and a man's husky shout. Feet ran swiftly past his window. He heard another shout, and then a voice of command. He could not distinguish the words, but the ship herself seemed to respond. There came a sudden smoothness of dead engines, followed by the pounding shock of reverse, and the clanging alarm of a bell calling both crews to quarters. Alan faced his cabin door. He knew what had happened. Someone was overboard, and in this moment all life and strength were gone out of his body, for the pale face of Mary Standish seemed to rise for an instant before him, and in her quiet voice she was telling him again that this was the other way. His face went white as he caught up his smoking gown, flung open his door, and ran down the dimly lighted corridor. End of chapter 8